Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm our Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And uh, thank you for coming uh, for this discussion about uh, what I think is a very important book on healthcare uh, by David Goldhill called Catastrophic Care, How American Healthcare Killed My Father and How We Can Fix It. Uh, we are going to be hearing from the author first. Uh, David Goldhill is the CEO of GSN. I guess it's formerly known as the Game Show Network, but we've... Uh, we've Still thinking of that. We, we, okay, we've, we've truncated that like ARP and so forth. Um, and uh, we'll be hearing from him, and then we're going to get comment on the book uh, by yours truly uh, and uh, Bob Grayboys. Now, we had a change in the lineup today because Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a, a scholar at the Brookings Institution, a former uh, official in the Obama administration, uh, was wor working in the Obama administration when the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was making its way through Congress, and I believe she helped to implement it as well. She got stuck in, uh, in, in an airport somewhere and was not able to make it back to DC in time. So uh, we're very fortunate that uh, uh, Professor Robert Grayboys has been able to step in and provide comment on the book. Uh, Bob Grayboys is the, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, uh, he teaches health economics at such varied, uh, at med schools and nursing schools at such varied universities as George Washington University, the University of Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University, the University of Richmond. Am I leaving any out? George Mason. George Mason. I, I should, have, should have mentioned that. He's also a former uh, uh, health care advisor to the National Federation of Independent Business, which is a small business uh, association here in Washington, D.C. You may know them as the organization that uh, that challenged uh, the individual mandate uh, in, the, in the PPACA and whose uh, uh, case against that went all the way to the Supreme Court. So uh, uh, Dr. Grayboys and I will be providing comment after, uh, after David Goldhill finishes up his remarks. Then we'll open the uh, floor to you, uh, questions from the audience. And uh, afterward, we invite you to join us all for, uh, for lunch in our George Yeager Conference Center. That's two floors up. So with that, I'll turn things over to David Goldhill. David. Good afternoon. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming. My uh, my interest in healthcare uh, began with what happened to my father. Uh, my dad, at the age of 82, uh, after work one day, walked into a hospital with some shortness of breath. They kept him for observation overnight. Uh, within that day, he acquired an infection in the hospital that led to a series of infections that ultimately uh, killed him. And obviously, uh, this is an extraordinary personal tragedy. And I think what turned my interest from the personal grief to the broader issues of healthcare is that within a month after my father died, The New Yorker published a piece by Atul Gawande about Peter Pronovost's effort to get hospitals to reduce the incidence of acquired infections. In that article, he mentioned that roughly 100,000 Americans die every year from hospital infections. There's roughly 200,000 that die from mistakes of all types. But that many of these infections were, in fact, easily preventable. And Pronovost had come up with a series 
of protocols to prevent most of them, almost two-thirds of them in hospitals that had adopted them. What was interesting to me as someone who just lost a parent and as a businessman is that it cost almost nothing to implement these protocols. And yet, he was having a hard time getting hospitals to do it. Uh, I, at one time, ran a movie theater chain. And we had a simple rule. If a soda spills, 10 minutes to clean it up or the manager is docked. Why? Well, the reason was very simple. is that we competed with movie theaters across the street. And if you walked into our movie theater chain on a Saturday night and the first thing you saw was some spilled soda on the floor, it changed your perception of the quality of the experience. Something very simple, very small. Why was it that hospitals weren't incented, economically or otherwise, to do something very simple and very small that saved lives? And it really is the start of a series of questions I've asked as a businessman about our healthcare industry. Catastrophic care is about essentially a business person's look at healthcare from the outside, not accepting all of the sort of complex reasons and inside healthcare explanations for why healthcare has gotten so bad at so many things. It really is an attempt to understand and to portray healthcare as an island outside of the mainland of our economy and try to understand how those differences have affected what we see in healthcare, from high error rates to very erratic quality to an enormous amount of excess care coexisting with people who can't get any access to care to extraordinarily high prices and, of course, the absolute worst customer service of any industry on earth. My father's experience um, isn't the only thing that, that, uh, uh, that drives my perspective of healthcare. Uh, there's also having just been alive. This, I think, is the most important slide in healthcare policy if we really want to step back and look at it. In 1965, on the eve of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the computer industry existed only in its mainframe form. So only the biggest uh, enterprises on Earth can use a computer, and only a couple hundred thousand people had any idea how to use it anywhere. Um, in 1965, if we were having this discussion, and I asked you to think about 45 years later, which of these two industries, healthcare, which was about to benefit from expanded access because of Medicare and Medicaid, or computers, would make the following excuses for failure. It's too complicated for people to understand. It's too distant from what people do every day. It's not a discretionary good. You, you don't have a choice to buy it. You have to buy it. Which industry would use that to explain its dysfunction? 1965 happens to be the year that the DEC Corporation introduced the PDP-8, which is the first mini-computer ever created. A mini-computer was about the size of this podium. Now, a mini-computer was the first effort to do something other than a mainframe for somebody other than NASA or the Defense Department or General Motors. A mini-computer could just be used by a big company to process its information. Now, obviously, nobody in 1965 thought the computer could be a consumer product. It's a very specialized product. You needed a lot of knowledge to use one and a lot of complexity to introduce it into your organization. But the PDP-8 was revolutionary. Uh, it was obviously expensive. And to give you an idea of how expensive it was, at $19,000, which is what the first one cost, it was a full 80 times, actually closer to 90 times, what the average American spent on healthcare that year. So 
obviously not a consumer product. All of you are carrying in your pockets today a computer far more powerful than the PDP-8. <coughs> All of you. In fact, many of them are using them now, and I don't blame you. Um, and it does everything, right? It doesn't just process faster than the PDP-8, but you may have bought it on the basis of its color, or the cool apps, or the camera. It does everything for you. It's a mere two generations later. But here's the interesting thing about the smartphone you're carrying. The average price of a smartphone, now used by a billion and a half people, going to two billion by next year, is 1 40th what the average American spends on healthcare. In two generations, the cost of a computer relative to healthcare, or healthcare relative computer, increased 3,600 times. Now, the only reason this is possible is for us to think that healthcare exists on such a temperate island that nothing we learned about in computers, nothing we've learned about in anything else, could matter. And you've heard this, right? You will hear people in healthcare say, technology is driving up costs. Take a look at that picture. There were some technological improvements in the computer in the last two generations. <laughs> technology is driving up costs is often written by somebody on a $250 laptop. They never understand the irony. What else do we hear in healthcare? You can't have a functioning market because consumers don't know enough about healthcare. There were a couple hundred thousand people who knew how to use that two generations ago. That's it, whole planet. What else do you hear? Can never be a normal market because healthcare is not discretionary. You gotta have it. I think most of us feel that way now more about our smartphones than about anything else in our life. What my book is about is why the stuff we learned in in, in this, in our cell phones, in Starbucks, in Walmart, in everything in our lives has been excluded from healthcare. And it's actually not complicated. It's quite simple. In computers, something happened that has never happened in healthcare, which is that every single person who works in the computer business, including myself, I'm in the digital games business, spends all day trying to figure out how to make the product better, more accessible, cheaper, easier to buy, simpler, more colorful, more fun, more complex, you know, more, more full of, 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 uh, of, of what you need. All of those positive things, better, simpler, cheaper, is what drives fortunes, drives business models in computers, and in everything, except in healthcare. You do it better in healthcare, you have a lower error rate, lower revenue, we know that. Cheaper, lower revenue, no benefit of being cheaper. Customer service, lower revenue. What are you wasting money on customer service for? Why is there no IT in healthcare? Why would you make an investment in something that just improves service quality and reliability? There's no way to get paid for that. Your dry cleaner figured out how to get paid for that. But in healthcare, there is no such business model. The argument of catastrophic care is when you get away from the island of healthcare and stop listening to all the sort of weird and specific explanations and think of it as an industry, because 15 million people work in this industry, you realize that the fundamental economic incentives are so different than in everything else that of course we would have a product that is extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily complicated, has very, very poor service, and has erratic quality. What would you expect to get? Those are the incentives. The other thing that forms my perspective is being an employer. I have 350 employees. This is Becky. She's 25 years old. It's her first job out of college. She's three years in. If 
the Affordable Care Act succeeds in reducing the cost of care growth to 0% from the moment I wrote the book till the end of Becky's life, Becky will put $1.2 million into our healthcare system. Most of it she'll be unaware of, right? She'll see her share of premiums, she'll see her out of pocket, she'll probably see her Medicare premiums, but she'll be completely unaware of the percent of her taxes and the percent of her compensation that will go to pay for the healthcare beast. Becky is an entry-level employee, earning an entry-level salary. This is what we've put on her. Now, the 1.8 here was assuming the Affordable Care Act's projections of what growth is for the next 10 years. So if the Affordable Care Act succeeds by its own measure, she's looking at 1.8, roughly $1.9 million. She's a working spouse, that's more. One of the key points in, in my book is that I don't think there's any amount of financial engineering, no matter how clever, that can turn expensive healthcare into affordable healthcare. I think all you can do is engage in hidden costs. But this is what Becky is bearing now, assuming she remains middle class her whole life. It's an absolutely unsustainable burden today. Catastrophic care is not a policy book, although I propose policy. The real point of catastrophic care is to argue against the conventional wisdom that has so constrained healthcare for the last 50 years that even 50 years of failure prevents us from ever rethinking some of the basics. This gentleman here, Kenneth Arrow, is responsible probably for the biggest part of that conventional wisdom. 50 years ago to this year, he wrote a very influential argument, article in which he said, look, you can never have normal market incentives in healthcare because consumers have no leverage. They don't know anything. They'll take anything doctors tell them to take. They're price insensitive customers, and that's the reality. And that's true. It's true of a lot of markets. Consumers don't do very much in any market. It's what providers have to do to chase us that determines the good results that happen in most places. There's a number of problems with Arrow's conventional wisdom. The first is things have changed a lot. There are very few patients, certainly uh, educated patients, who go to see a doctor without having first gone online. Doctors complain about how much information they have. But as important, there are very few parts of healthcare that don't involve patient choice. This idea that, that our healthcare spending is coming from people hit by, you know, hit by buses or having sudden heart attacks is in completely out of date. The bulk of our healthcare spending is long-term management of chronic conditions, of which even something like cancer is now one. There is almost nothing we do in healthcare that doesn't involve the patient making a decision between providers, treatments, trading off personal lifestyle decisions versus drugs. And it's in that decision that the opportunity to restructure the industry and its incentives exist. Definitely. If healthcare was all about our getting hit by buses and being taken to hospitals unconscious, hard to build markets. But that's not what it is. It's a completely outdated view of what we spend our money on. The other thing that Arrow got wrong is the assume a can opener problem, which exists very much in healthcare. You know the old joke about a bunch of professions trapped on a desert island and the only thing they have to eat are sealed cans of food. And nobody has an explanation for how they're going to eat except for the economist who says, assume a can opener. The joke in healthcare is that what Arrow and others did is they said, assume government could resolve this neutrally. That government could come in, be the consumer, without affecting materially how much healthcare was provided. 
at what cost, with what level of quality and service. Well, that assume a can opener assumption, I think, has been disproven by 50 years. There's tons of conventional wisdom in healthcare. I just want to attack one just to give you a flavor for the book. If you want to go to a healthcare conference and have, maybe except for Cato's, and have everybody in the room shake their head in agreement, you will say the following. Healthcare is an abnormal industry because the need is concentrated among a small number of people. And in any given year, 70%, the number is actually declining to the high 60s, but 70% is what people use of healthcare is consumed by only 10% of the population. So of course we need insurance. How else would you pay for such a concentration of need? This is what that number looks like for cars. This is what it looks like for college educations. This is what it looks like for weddings, refrigerators. And if it's OK with you, I'd like to spend my remaining 10 minutes going through all the other universally used consumer products that we use a lot of in some years, relatively little of in others. The problem is, and, and the book is about this, there's so much in healthcare we've been telling ourselves is absolutely true and obvious and we know that nobody's ever bothered to check. Healthcare is less concentrated than almost any other expensive good and service. We all use significant amounts of it at some point in our lives. Remember the trick of this. This is in any given year. Now, we know healthcare is different. Why? Some people are sick for long periods of time. Car market doesn't depend or involve a lot of us buying cars every single year. We buy a car every four or five, six years. We buy a house every 20, 30 years. Uh, we get married at uh, some frequency. Um, <laughs> the point, though, is that when you think about with, with the enormous amount we spend on end-of-life care, almost all of us are likely to be in that 10% for a year, which, of course, is the complete opposite of what you do in insurance. If all of our homes were going to burn down, all of them, the cost of homeowner's insurance would be equal to the cost of your house. It would actually be more because it's administrative expensive. Remember, insurance is the most expensive way to pay for anything in terms of administration, distortion, what have you. To protect the few percent of these people who are sick for a long period of time, which I would argue, even here, is a worthwhile social goal. We've decided that insurance must cover everybody for everything, with all of the expense and distortion and problems based entirely on this completely false piece of conventional wisdom. Now, let's talk a little about policy. If uh, my scheduled counterpart were here, she would be talking about payment reform, about how we can use the power of the government to drive more sensible arrangements in healthcare. Why isn't she right? It's a fundamental premise behind healthcare policy, frankly, bipartisan healthcare policy, that big institutions can drive these meaningful changes in a way that individual consumers cannot. So let's talk about the single most successful attempt to do this in the history of American healthcare policy, uh, a Reagan-era reform called the prospective payment system. Many people don't know, because everybody complains about fee-for-service, that Medicare's payment for hospital isn't fee-for-service. It's bundle payments according to your diagnosis. And the intention in the early 80s was, if we can do that, we can discourage hospitals from keeping people too long and selling them lots of services, we could encourage coordination, and we can drive down price. And it worked brilliantly. The percentage of, of days spent in a hospital per beneficiary in Medicare has declined by almost two-thirds since this reform entirely because hospitals' incentive to keep you inpatient longer went away. The total days of admission in hospital have declined. 
Hospital inpatient business has been a disaster for two decades. And so we know what happened. This is what set off the enormous decline in healthcare costs that we have seen for the last 30 years, right? Because we cut demand of the most expensive service in half. The amount Medicare reimburses per day inpatient hospital day has increased 5x in that same time. So in other words, you lose half your business, but somebody's willing to pay you five times more. That's a great business. But here's the more important little bar. Hospitals say their costs have grown seven and a half times. Now, those of you watching Breaking Bad know who Heisenberg is. And the Heisenberg principle is if you measure something, you affect it. What do we do in healthcare? Well, the smart people in healthcare try to measure your real costs. What does it cost you to do something? We don't do that in the rest of the mainland, right? You don't walk into, hall, into Walmart and say, hmm, tube of toothpaste. Let me get a sense of the cost of the ingredients before I determine whether I'll pay this price. They just set price. But in healthcare, we've allowed price and cost to be confused. So what's your incentive if you're a hospital? Show how big my costs are. Interestingly, the DRGs, because they reduce demand, set off this massive arms race to increase your cost. Hospitals now say they get only 24% of their costs reimbursed by Medicare. And last week, one of my colleagues' father needed a valve replacement, went to four New York City hospitals, and they have been harassing him for their business ever since. Because obviously they lose money on every Medicare patient. The mirage of payment reform is related to the mirage of efficiency. If my Counterpart were here, she'd talk about in her writings how to make healthcare more efficient. It's so appealing. If we can make it more efficient, we can get costs down. If we get costs down, prices will come down. Except that's not what happens. Efficiency isn't an answer, it's a process. And it's a process set off by competition. And if there's no movie theater across the street, my incentive is to show you how much harder and more expensive it is to do my stuff. In any other business, if demand declined by 50%, prices would drop and costs would have gone through the floor. Um, I'm going to show just one more slide and, and get to the end. This is, this is, I think, absolutely crucial. One of the greatest forms of confusion in the healthcare world is Medicare. Here's the traditional way of looking at Medicare. Medicare took the financial burden away from our seniors during the time in which they are most vulnerable uh, to tremendous healthcare costs. Um, obviously, Medicare grows because the population's getting older, which means people have more chronic conditions, and they have greater need. And it will continue to grow as the population ages. The only problem with that is that's not what Medicare's own data show. What Medicare's data show very clearly is that the volume of healthcare per person at every age has exploded since the onset of Medicare. We have medicalized senior citizenship in this country. Now, if you're a traditional analyst, what you're looking at is the $22,000 per year that Medicare spends on its sickest patients on average, sickest 15%. It's the wrong thing to look at. The patients that are the seniors that describe themselves as being in excellent health spend $6,000 a year on healthcare, more than the average spent on healthcare in any other country on earth, spent by just those who are in excellent care. I would make the argument in the book that when you look at what Arrow said, which was we'll buy anything doctors sell us, are we more likely to do that or less likely to do it when someone else is paying for it? Now, everyone talks about this in terms of money. Let's not. Let's talk about it in terms of pain. Pain. All healthcare 
has the potential for benefit, but it has the potential for pain. I just want to look at this top statistic. I hate sort of reading off a slide. One out of every three Medicare patients has surgery in the year of their deaths. Despite the fact that surgery is very rarely indicated for a senior because of the long period of recovery, the great chance of depression, the enormous possibility for error, particularly if you're a senior and vulnerable. This is what Medicare has brought us, though. If you're not paying for it, you're more likely to engage in risky healthcare behavior. You're more likely to have too much treatment. Too much treatment is not a financial problem. It's a pain problem. It's a death problem. It's an error problem. Um, I want to close with this box. So, no, I really do. Well, you'll have to trust me. Where's my box? There it is. I would argue this is the most destructive idea in all of the post-war era. From the beginning of time, shipping things around the world was expensive. And the cost was the ship, the voyage. You could lose the ship. You had to pay a crew, uh, insurance issues. You had spoilage issues of whatever you had or, or all the rest. So what was the key to getting it right from the beginning of time? Packing your ship as efficiently as possible to reduce the number of voyages as much as possible. In the post-war era, a single guy came up with an idea. Let's increase the amount of air we ship. Let's put everything in a standardized box, even though most of that box will be empty because goods don't fit nicely in a box. And let's change the entire world transportation, cargo transportation system, be based on standard sizes. So that means you can automate the loading and unloading of ships, which means you can keep them in port for very little time. You can immediately move from ship to train to truck, which means you didn't need all that labor to figure out how you took something to fit in a ship and fit it on a rail car or a truck. Um, you could have much greater distances between suppliers and manufacturers and distributors and customers. So the box is widely credited for globalization. The box, it, there's no way to estimate how much the box saved because it's such a massive number. But when people try to estimate it, they think the cost of shipping on an apples-to-apples -apples basis has probably declined somewhere between 90 and 95%. Inventory change as a percent of manufactured goods have declined by that much because we've changed the shipping world. Why do I mention the box? I want you to think about the box in terms of healthcare. Catastrophic care argues that healthcare should be cheap. Not insurance should be cheap, not the financial engineering should be cheap, not your co-payment should be cheap, but this should have been the industry most transformed by technology, especially information technology, which is almost non-existent. Technology exists today. It didn't happen because the box couldn't happen, and I want you to imagine something in the box. Some guy walks into a healthcare conference or a policy, uh, a committee of Congress and says, here's my idea. I want to do something that's going to cost a tremendous amount of money. It's going to change every port city on Earth. It's going to change every train, every this, every that. So it's going to cost a lot of upfront money, but over time, it's going to save almost everything. Right? And it's kind of irrational, because now we try to efficiently figure out, we have a, a measurement of efficiently, how well do you package a ship. And we're going to move to this incredible inefficient thing. We're going to fit motorcycles in boxes, even though most of the box will be empty. Right? That's a dumb idea. And here's the other thing. Tons of people are going to lose their jobs. Tons of people. Longshoremen's Union is going to go away. If you're a port that doesn't invest in a new technology, you're going to lose all your traffic. If you're an old manufacturing city, 
you're too, you know, that's too close to supply and has too high a cost, you'll be replaced by somebody, by some inland Asian city that nobody can think of how they get to today. It wouldn't survive in healthcare, right? What stakeholder would like that? The only people who would like that are patients. Better, cheaper, simpler. Those incentives don't his exist in healthcare. They don't exist in the way we build policy. And that's why there's no box. Catastrophic care is not a big picture book. It's a little picture book. It's a book about tying what we see as individuals and consumers and people in our jobs to what we see in healthcare. Because what's interesting is my dad's story is very typical, sadly. It's 100,000 deaths like his, 200,000 if you include all errors. But all of us have stories, right? Lost files, inability to make appointments, specialists who didn't talk to primary physicians or each other, hospitals who forgot who you were, shift labor that you had to reintroduce your case to, right? Filling out the same form over and over and over again. It's the little picture in healthcare that we need to tie to the big picture in order to make the truly revolutionary changes we need to make healthcare, arguably our most important industry, one that at least meets the standards of dry cleaning, auto repair, and maybe one day, cell phones. Thanks, Michael. Hi, folks. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Michael, for asking me. It was a real pleasure to get the call this morning. So Michael told you a little bit about my background. I'll tell you just a little bit more. I like to think about how I got it. This is a good free market audience, so it's a good story for it. I like to say I can date my shift from international economics into healthcare precisely. It was the evening that the night that Ronald Reagan was reelected as president in 1984. I happened to be uh, being driven on a remote stretch of road in West Africa, the Republic of Liberia, when suddenly I was stopped. We were stopped by some soldiers pointing machine guns at us and telling us to do something in a language I didn't understand. Turns out we were being turned into an ambulance to carry a woman deep in, in labor to a hospital 30 miles away. And I thought, now that is a health care mandate. And so, I've, so I, I, I have... I have spent my, the intervening years shifting over into healthcare and thinking about mandates, a command and control economy. And that really is what we have, and that's a lot of what comes out in David's book and in a couple of others that I'll mention. Now, I've just uh, moved over to Mercatus about two weeks ago. Um, I'll put in a little plug. My goal, our goal there, I think, is to become the premier institution uh, for looking at uh, healthcare from a free market perspective. We will have a tall order because of people like Michael here and uh, the great work that they've done over the years. Uh, there are a lot of people in town we'll be competing with, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to add our, our piece of it. I don't uh, really need to tell this crowd, I don't think, how bad the Affordable Care Act is. Um, you know, most of us wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night thinking about that particular issue. There are a couple of things we're going to have to do, and I'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but but you know, I, can, I can summarize it in a couple of points. First of all, the Affordable Care Act focuses almost entirely on the demand side. And David said this in a number of ways, that it, it's the buying power that's going to, uh, to change things, uh, completely ignoring the supply side. However, I will say that most of the free market advocates 
including at times Michael and me and others, have focused also on that demand side, and we need to look far more at what is the supply side, what determines what gets produced, products that no one even knows about yet. Um, another point that I'm going to focus on in my work is I believe, in all honesty, I teach mostly mid-career healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, therapists, administrators, you name it. And I will tell you this, after teaching graduate, the doctoral and, uh, and master's level for 15 years, quietly, inexorably, that whole industry is sliding to the left, toward statism, toward collectivism, toward a resignation of, I give up, let the government tell me what to do, write me a check twice a month, and I'll be here between nine and five, done. And it, it worries me to death. But that is a community we have to reach. We have to reach uh, the healthcare professionals, in particular the doctors, because they have a huge multiplier effect. How many people out there say, well, I was talking to my doctor who thinks, uh, who told me things are great over in England and France and up in Canada, so yeah, let's let the government take over. Huge multiplier effect. I would go so far as to say that getting the medical profession Back, looking at markets and thinking about them is a necessary condition for winning this battle of ideas. It is also pretty close to being a sufficient solution. If we get to them, we win the battle. We win the war about it. And we're, we're losing it now. And so that's going to be a lot of my emphasis. Now, how do we go about that? And David's book is fantastic for revealing things. And I'll get, get to that in a little bit. But I'm convinced that to be a statist, to be a collectivist, to think that command and control is the way to go, government-centered uh, government health care, you have to have an almost religious faith in the sanctity of data, in the infallibility of economic modeling, in the pure altruism of politicians, the near omnipotence of bureaucrats to shape and mold and fine-tune the behavior of 310 million Americans. I don't believe in those things, but a lot of people have slipped into that belief, including a lot of my absolutely brilliant students uh, who I would trust with my life on the operating table any day, but they are being led in that direction and leading themselves there. On the other hand, conservatives, libertarians, other market advocates, uh, including, including some on the liberal end, uh, have not offered adequate solutions. Again. And when I say adequate, let me say persuasive, convincing solutions, solutions that work outside of our own little bubble here that we can all, you know, I can tell you markets and you'll all say, yes, that's the way to do it. Let's go for markets. Well, that's convincing to us because we've sort of attuned ourselves to thinking that way. It's not convincing to a lot of people. And I guess what really strikes me with a lot of my, the doctors and nurses in my class is I get a lot of people who by and large are very, very sympathetic to free markets in practically everything other than healthcare, and they believe there's a law of physics that, that, that marks a wall there that says, markets work over here, but not over here. Let the government do it there. That's the argument we are in the process of losing. That's the argument that we have to win back. So a lot of this is both coming up with substance. How do we address, again, that supply side? And secondly, how do we message it? And I'll add that, uh, that I think a lot of the things that we have to advocate, a lot of the reforms that have to be, come out must be simultaneous. Uh, we're going to have to reform the Medicare reimbursement formula, which figures so prominently in David's book. We're going to have to fix insurance markets, tax, and, um, 
And very importantly, we're going to have to focus heavily on state regulations, which is sort of what keeps us in, uh, to use David's terminology, and I often use it myself, a mainframe medical care rather than moving us to the laptop and smartphone health care uh, that, that he was talking about. We have to message it in a way that makes sense. Again, the name, the word markets just doesn't do it for a lot of people who are winnable, who are attainable for these arguments. So lately I've been personalizing. I've been asking a question, and it's interesting because I'll get stares of that's an interesting question. When I simply ask, why is there no Steve Jobs anywhere in healthcare? Someone who comes in from the shadows that you've never heard of shows us a way to make prices plunge and shortly thereafter to see quality rising to unimagined heights, leading us into new products, new uh, innovations that we've never even thought about, that we never knew we wanted. No one knew uh, when that deck came out that they wanted a smartphone. Uh, very, let's say very few. There were one or two out there, but not many. So where is Steve Jobs for healthcare? Where is Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk? Uh, if you want to go back a little bit, Henry Ford. And for me, the answer is that we have structured the healthcare industry in such a way that such people cannot exist. And that, I would interpret, is really the main thrust of David's book. We have built a legal structure, a regulatory structure, an institutional structure and sort of a political culture of insiderism, uh, insider power that assures that cannot happen in healthcare. That is what we need to change. Now, I always like, I am a professor and I do send, uh, I, I like to hand my students reading materials. There were two books that I used in uh, my class at George Washington this spring, and they really turned a lot of heads, including I have a lot of my students, probably most of them there, are somewhere on the political left and really were captivated by this. One was Clayton Christensen's uh, The Innovator's Prescription. It's the first book I would recommend to anybody as to uh, how do you get that Steve Jobs. Secondly, I used a book, uh, it, it won't be one of Michael's books, but because he writes good ones too, but John Goodman's book, Priceless, which uh, if you know John Goodman, he's quite opinionated, but he really sort of stuck to the objective and the straightforward and wrote a wonderful book called Priceless. Had I known of David's book back then, and I did not, I think I'd heard the title and that's about it, uh, I would have included that as well. Because these three books, more than anything, throw these three, sit someone down, have them read them. I think it's very hard not to come out reinventing your thoughts, the way that you look at healthcare. Remarkable thing, and again, I've been teaching uh, teaching healthcare in universities for 15 years. Hardly a page in David's book went by that I wasn't learning new things, or at least learning new ways to put things. His employee, Becky, whom he shows, will spend more than 50% of her lifetime compensation on healthcare without ever knowing it. I should have known that number, but I didn't. It's a staggering thought, and he goes through the numbers very carefully, uh, very detailed. Um, he changed the way that I argue about Medicare. Usually uh, you know, there's an, an argument from Medicare enthusiasts that their administrative costs are low, and I usually say, well, that's only as a percentage of the cost of treating old, sick people who have very expensive illnesses. David said, no, let's, let's, um, let's look at it a different way. It's like saying we could, a bank could save on administrative costs by firing all their security guards. 
course, they would have a lot of money going out the door, which is exactly what you do have in Medicare with fraud, waste, abuse, a real case. Chapter after chapter, he makes arguments in ways I have not, uh, not seen. And probably the most important point, and it's on his uh, mention of Kenneth Arrow, and it's something I deal with all the time with my students, which is this question, why is healthcare different? And I generally spend a, an entire semester drawing them out of that notion, trying to convince them you're not as different from other markets as you think you are. And David has a, a very, a really wonderful line, I won't get the wording exact, but basically he says, okay, it's not because you spend a lot in one year, it's not because of the presence of insurance or third-party payers. Healthcare is different because people think it's different. And that's just something that you have to deal with. And uh, anyway, again, insight, uh, insight after insight after insight, I could take all of Michael's time if I were just uh, stood here telling you all the things, you know, don't leave without a copy and don't, uh, don't leave without reading this book. It, it, it is a must. So again, so what are we going to have to do? I'm, I'm just going to repeat. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with that supply side to unleash, unshackle the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos and all these people who right now are simply not permitted to do what they can do in other industries. Again, we're going to have to reach the medical community in ways they find convincing, persuasive, and it's not just a matter of beating them over the head and saying markets are good, government's bad. You're going to have to persuade them and let them come back on their own. And thirdly, we're going to have to do a lot of things simultaneously because if you just fix Medicare, the state regulations are still a problem, and you, you give the centralizers uh, an ability to say, see, it didn't work. You've got to hit it all at once. That's it. Thanks, Bob. And again, thanks, David. I invited David uh, to present on his book here. I wanted to have a forum on his book because I don't know if you mentioned, I don't remember if you mentioned it, David, but uh, your first foray into health policy was the 2009 article in the Atlantic. Was it September 2009? Uh, that went by the title, How American Healthcare Killed My Father. Uh, that article uh, was, was a revelation for me. I had never seen anyone make so persuasively the business case, why there's no business case for improving quality in healthcare, for, for falling prices in healthcare. And the, it, it all goes, and, and contrary to what most people think when they pick up an article that attacks the U.S. healthcare sector, it didn't lead to the conclusion at, at, at all that the solution is, or the, the problem is free markets in healthcare and the solution is more government direction, more uh, government price negotiation, more pilot programs uh, to uh, identify and promote high quality care. It reached the conclusion that actually all of those things are what's causing all of these miseries. So uh, it was an incredibly important article and I think this is an incredibly important book. Now, um, there's a certain uh, uh, format you follow when you're when you're critiquing someone else's book, you you say lots of nice things about the book first, then you have just a couple of dings at the uh, places where you ding them at the end. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna say an awful lot of nice things. This is an incredibly Im Im important book. Um, one thing is there's you know this is this is there's a challenge when you're writing a healthcare book or a health policy book, and I've I've, I've encountered this as uh, as as an author. I've encountered this challenge as a publisher and an editor. If you want to know what the challenge is, try this. The next time you're at a dinner party and someone asks you what you do for a living, tell them you're in health policy. 
even if you're not in health policy, tell them you're in health policy and see, see how their body language changes, whether they try to move closer to you, whether they try to find someone else to talk to. There's, uh, there's, there is an element of dryness to this. This is not a dry book, though, that David has written. Uh, this, this book touches on, among other things, well, he finds time in this book to compliment his wife on how she looks, to tease his mom. He touches on uh, such themes as Chris Rock, Tom Cruise, Homer Simpson, Mae West, Viagra, and this is a direct quote, boob jobs. So I can't help but think this, th that uh, you'd sell more books if you had included some of those themes in the cover, maybe the, t the title or the, the cover of the book. But uh, there's, there, this is not just a boring health policy book. Your, your discussion of uh, the importance of market prices, I think, is a, a, an incredibly important contribution to the debate over healthcare. Uh, the importance of market prices and how much of our troubles in healthcare are due to the fact that we have price controls and other less obvious government distortions of the price mechanism uh, that are distor distorting how that mechanism is supposed to work. And your discussion of that. Uh, of the price mechanism and how it works in other markets and should work in healthcare, I think would make Friedrich Hayek's heart sing. You talk about how inside the price of every $5 cup of Starbucks coffee, I don't even drink coffee, I don't go to Starbucks, I hear it's expensive, but inside the price of every cup of Starbucks coffee is contained so much information that it's hard to fathom. In that one price, you have information about uh, all of, the, all of the ingredients that go into making that cup of coffee and their prices. You have information about all the products and machines that touch those ingredients, about all the people who employ those machines, about all the structures that shelter those people. You have information in that one price about all the vehicles that transport those products and those machines and those people, all the capitalists who employ those products, machines, vehicles, those structures, and those people, and all of the alternative uses of those ingredients, products, machines, vehicles, structures, people, and that capital. And as well, in that price, you have information about you, the consumer, and what are your preferences, and what are the alternatives to you, and what those other alternative consumers' preferences are. But in healthcare, either the government distorts those prices, distorts the prices, and hides them so that no one can find them, and, by, and also takes away anyone's incentive, any, any consumer's incentive to find those prices, or it sets those prices directly. And so in neither case, uh, do you have do health prices reflect anyone's actual preferences? Uh, everyone's so everyone in our healthcare sector, uh, producers, consumers are running around trying to make the right decisions for themselves, trying to make healthcare or, or for their uh, for patients, trying to make healthcare better, trying to make it cheaper, trying to make it safer, trying to make access to care more secure. But th the prices are always wrong. So no no one has accurate information. Nobody has the right information, and the consequences are disastrous and all around us. Uh, I think that um, the there's also an ex David offers an excellent explanation of why government dictated prices or price controls create this illusion that the underlying cost of providing health care is increasing and will always increase. When in, uh, when in fact, without the pr these government price controls that are trying to make health care more affordable, health care prices would fall and become more affordable. Uh, David also touches on how there's really no reliable evidence, and I think this, is, this, is, this cannot be overemphasized, how there's no reliable evidence that either Medicare or Medicaid have improved the health of the people that they're supposed to help. 
David does say the one study, the, the only study ever that tries to weigh the cost versus benefits of, uh, of, of Medicare. Uh, you, you, you touch on it a little bit. You don't mention that it, that study suggests that maybe the costs don't, uh, or the, many, the benefits don't justify the costs. It's the, in the paperback. It was. It came out too late. Oh, okay. So, so, so the, the Finkelstein-McKnight uh, study actually tallied up uh, what benefits they could find in terms of health and what benefits they could find in terms of financial protection from the high cost of you know, catastrophic medical expenses and found that the benefits were a fraction of the costs of Medicare. So I think that I think the original title of that article is "What Did Medicare Do and Was It Worth It?" And by the time it was published in a journal article, someone made them get rid of the uh, "Was It Worth It?" part because we didn't. Apparently, we can't question that. Also, uh, I wonder if in the paperback you had more about the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. Okay, you mentioned the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which is the only really the second randomized controlled, so really reliable study conducted on health insurance in the United States or in the world. It measured people who get Medicaid, the government program that's ostensibly for the poor, versus similar people who did not get Medicaid, and, and after two years could find no health differences between the two. On uh, objective measures of health, where you would think that health insurance coverage would have had some impact, and yet they Oregon, couldn't. Oregon? The Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. And so, uh, and, and so, there, is, you know, there, there are a lot of other incredibly important contributions that you make in this book. One is, you note that I, the frustrating reality, and here is, I want to make sure I get, get the quote right, the frustrating reality is that despite more than 60 years of government efforts representing the work of both political parties, we're moving further and further away from what we want. Prices are, are higher, more people are excluded from needed care, more excess treatments are performed, and more people die from preventable errors. You, and you write, the problem with... The ACA is that it isn't that it represents a government takeover of healthcare or socialism, but that the problem with the ACA is that it's so old-fashioned. End quote. That's, it just doubles down on the existing system that we have, and part of the problem is uh, a, a, another passage from your book. Quote: Simply put, the, would those whom the the bill intended to help actually benefit? when all the uh, of the legislation's effects on their lives were considered? I don't know the answer to that question, but I can't find any evidence that it was ever even asked by the bill's proponents. <clears throat> so this is a book that really questions the fundamental assumptions underlying most health policy debate in the United States. And it's also incredibly valuable and important that the person who's uh, questioning these assumptions is not a libertarian is not a conservative, is not a Republican. David says, he says in his article, he says in his book that he's a, would you say a lifelong Democrat? Yeah, close enough. Yeah, so that's, 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 uh, uh, that's, that's close enough. He's a Democrat, and, and so I think to make this case in a way uh, to, to a lot of people uh, you know, who, who might not be receptive uh, to this case if it comes from, uh, from, from libertarians or from uh, conservatives or from Republicans, uh, only Nixon could go to China, and so maybe only a, a David Goldhill can make this this argument to diehard proponents of, of of these sorts of government interventions. Now, I said I was going to uh, had to offer a, a couple of dings, and and one of them is this: uh, you write uh, David writes uh, uh, on page forty six, quote, even my most doctrinaire libertarian friends admit they don't want to live in a society that lets people die on the streets. 
And I have to ding you for the word admit there. As if libertarians have been trying to, to, to advance this perception that we're so cold and unfeeling that we really do want people to die on the streets, but if our back's up against the wall, yeah, we'll admit, no, we don't really mean that. Of course we don't really mean that. The reason why libertarians, uh, one of the two reasons that libertarians care about health policy, uh, the, the way that we do is, be, uh, is because we believe that there will be fewer people dying in the streets the more we have the government, the more we pull government back from our healthcare sector. Healthcare will be better, it will be cheaper, it will be uh, safer, it will be more secure, the less the government tries to do to guarantee all of these things. Um, also, uh, I think that like most health care books, uh, I think that Catastrophic Care is a book that's a little bit in conflict with itself. There's, you've heard about, uh, David mentioned this, there's an 80-20 rule when it comes to health spending. 80% of the spending is done by 20% of the people. Some call it a 90-10 rule. There's also sort of an 80-20, I've noticed uh, that there's an 80-20 rule for health policy books. And it usually works like this. 80% of the book is devoted to cataloging the, 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 uh, the harm done by government error, by government interventions in our healthcare sector. Now, most health policy books don't realize that that's what they're cataloging, but, they, but, but that's what is leading to all these harms. People losing their coverage when they lose their jobs. A lot of health policy books will bemoan that. Actually, that's a, they, they call it uh, market failure. Actually, that's an example of government failure and how the, because the federal government gave us this employment-based healthcare system where you lose your job and you lose your coverage. But then the last 20% of the book, after cataloging all of these harms that have been caused by government intervention in the healthcare sector, they propose additional government interventions in the last 20%. Or they say, all right, well, we'll just take these government interventions and we'll just make them work in a, in a different way. David does not, so most misdiagnose the 80%. David does not. David has got the diagnosis of, of what's ailing our healthcare sector spot on. You can see it on page 120 where he says that health experts rely on the political system to answer the difficult questions, but the results have not been promising. And that getting healthcare right is rarely a matter of finding the correct answer. It requires putting dynamic processes in place that counteract bad behavior. So he talks about how there's no reliable evidence that, uh, that government guarantees through Medicare and Medicaid uh, have helped the intended beneficiaries. The same is true of the, of, the, of the PPACA. He talks about how the industry, what he calls the beast, captures government health care programs, captures regulations, and frees in place inefficient and unsafe care. He talks about all the problems with these government mandates and, 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 uh, and regulations and programs, and then in the last 20% of the book, he proposes replacing existing government programs with a new one devoted to catastrophic care and a mandate that people uh, contribute money to a, uh, uh, well, it's, it's a complex plan. It revolves, it, it, but in the last 20% of the book, David advocates keeping in place a government guarantee of access to health care for everybody. And I would argue that once you have given, once you've agreed that the government should be doing that, you've pretty much given away the entire ballgame. Because 
even if you want to have a minimalist government role, a minimalist government guarantee of access to health care for all, it's not going to stay minimalist. And, and I, should, I should note that the proposal that David puts forward is actually very close to one that, put, uh, the, that Milton Friedman put forward uh, many years ago. I think he had, uh, he wanted <clears throat> to have, uh, he proposed a government-run catastrophic plan for everybody with deductibles tied to income or tied to a percentage of your income. David's is, is similar to that in many respects. So it's a minimalist, uh, it is relatively speaking, relative to what we have now, a minimalist government guarantee, but it's not gonna stay that way because if as David uh, proposes that this government program, this uh, what is really a single payer plan for catastrophic expenses, will quote, only cover uh, the treatment for truly rare, truly major, and truly unpredictable health problems, Who's going to be the ones to define what is truly rare and truly unpredictable and truly uh, and, and truly major? Who's going to define what is extremely dis, uh, uh, high deductible health insurance? Who's going to decide what the catastrophic, uh, the single payer catastrophic plan uh, program is going to cover? Who's going to decide how much of the 25, uh, I'm sorry, $2.5 trillion that we currently spend on healthcare in the United States will go to individuals through their health accounts that David proposes? And to uh, we'll go through this government-run uh, catastrophic program. Do we and do we really expect the political system to arrive at an allocation anywhere near the optimal one? So there are all sorts of these questions that are go still going to be uh, answered by government. And if you want to know how they're going to be answered, well, I'd refer you again to page uh, 120. Health experts rely on the political system to answer the difficult questions uh, of to answer the difficult questions, but the results have not been promising. Now, at one point, David, you do edge close to saying, you, you, you point out a, a major difference between Social Security and Medicare. The, the, the biggest difference between Social Security and Medicare is that through the Social Security program, the government actually trusts seniors to spend money, uh, to, to spend money on their own. Trust them. It doesn't tell them where they have to live. It doesn't tell them where they have to buy their food. It doesn't tell them whether they can eat at that restaurant or that one, much less negotiate the prices with the grocery stores and the restaurants and so forth. The social security program cuts seniors a check and says, you spend the money. You know how to spend it better than we do. The Medicare program does the exact opposite. The Medicare program decides, instead of giving seniors a check, it gives them a package of benefits. Here's everything that's gonna be in your health insurance. It dictates the prices to the providers who are, who are going to participate in the Medicare program and so forth. You inch very close to saying that we'd be better off if Medicare operated like Social Security by just cutting seniors a check and letting them spend the money. So I would propose that that would be one way of getting, injecting into, not just, not just into our healthcare sector, but injecting into a part of the population that it's the highest users of healthcare. They, the, the consumers of the most healthcare, the sort of cost consciousness and discipline on our system that doesn't exist right now, and I don't think would exist if we tried to keep Medicare in place uh, and preserve it for seniors as the, uh, as they as they know it today. So uh, with that, uh, I'll thank you all again, and I'm happy to take any questions that uh, uh, that you folks have for David or uh, Bob or me. Yes, sir. Um, question about consumer-directed high-deductible you know, high plans in general. Um, you mentioned, it was mentioned earlier, you have to win people over. I believe the professor mentioned that. 
And the problem is, is I see the stakeholders here, one being Medicare beneficiaries, you're essentially saying, do you want to incur more risk? You and I may think that's a good idea, but I think most of them would probably say no. So question one is how do you sort of win them over? And second of all, question of, it's a great term, the beast. I mean, they seem to be, if, if the object is drive down prices, that's not something they're going to like. I don't see how they win on that. I mean, yes on both. Uh, I'm actually reasonably optimistic because I think, uh, and I know I'm in a city and a group of people that focus on policy. I must tell you, I don't find policy that interesting. I find interesting what people do, what businesses do, what independent institutions do. And what you're seeing right now is a very quiet transformation of healthcare uh, that's in, 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 in part occurring because the ACA has so many provisions that try to <coughs> repeal gravity and gravity just won't repeal. Uh, and in part because the you know unsustainable trends end, and what I showed about Becky is unsustainable. She's just not going to pay it. What what's interesting, I think, is that if you look around the margins of healthcare, those things that may be included may not be included insurance, or those things that are included only in some plans. What you see is people bearing a lot more healthcare expense. They bear more in terms of the amount of policies they pay, even if their employer provides it. There's more out of pocket. There's more excluded. And we're going to go further in that direction, whether it's because of skinny plans or more high deductible plans and all the rest. The reason that matters is what happens in the private sector is once you get enough scale in customers, remember healthcare for the most part is local markets, not national ones, suddenly your incentive as a provider changes. The reason you can't find out a price in anything in healthcare isn't anything inherent about healthcare, it's that there's no benefit to the provider telling you the price. You're not going to buy many other goods if a guy refuses to tell you what it costs, but only in healthcare can you get away with it. Now, in the too much information category, I, I got my first colonoscopy this year. Um, at one of the many blessings of turning 50 or passing 50. When I called to arrange my colonoscopy, the second sentence out of the office clerk's mouth was, the price is $1,900. She did not say the cost was $1,900. And I said to her, wait a minute. Isn't this covered by insurance? I thought it's a test that's considered. And she said, yes, but it turns out now roughly half of our patients are paying either all or most of it out of pocket. And so we let you know up front. I, I, I could spend hours going back and forth with Michael on his criticisms of my plan, but I think the most important thing, those of us who do believe in some element that government can do without too much distortion, but not doing everything because it involves a lot of distortion, is the example of Singapore. What Singapore has shown, and Singapore has a lot of government intervention in the healthcare system and mandates a lot of things and everybody has accounts and high deductible plans, but Singapore shows something we often don't appreciate in healthcare, which is that very small changes can have industrial-wide implications. If a number, if, if 25, 30% of my practice, my business is price sensitive, then the whole business becomes price sensitive. You know, if you've ever had a blowout on a highway, that guy comes to you at the most urgent moment in your life. There's cars going by 75, 80 miles an hour. That's the point where even Michael Cannon says, you know, speed limits are too high. They should, they should have much more, right? Because you see your life pass in front of your eyes, right? You're desperate. Maybe the kids are in the car screaming and all the rest. The guy with the tow truck doesn't say to you, what's your net worth before changing your tire or telling you it? Why? Because he knows and you know that out there, there's a market in tires and tire replacements. He can charge a little more than that. He's risking his life too. You're desperate, what have you. 
But markets fundamentally drive things even when it seems non-market. And something I think we would agree on is that interestingly, that guy who gets hit by a bus and is taken unconscious in an ambulance and operated on immediately is going to get a better price in a market system than he isn't one that took care of him because the market system establishes prices. Healthcare is very interesting. Most things in healthcare have zero marginal cost. Now, the language has gotten bastardized, so people talk about cost instead of what they really mean is price. But the actual cost of doing another MRI is almost zero. Right? The actual cost of doing <coughs> almost anything. Empty operating rooms, empty high machines, they're like airplanes. Right? But that's not the way the price system has worked. My argument in the book, and Michael got to it and it's right, is that even small things that can drive scale in consumers, high deductible plans, greater deductibles, are already starting to stimulate this kind of change. And we see it around the edges of the economy, which suggests the possibility for the mainstream. So I'm actually quite optimistic. Was there something? Yeah. Great. Um, good question. Uh, I was having um, an online discussion not long ago with, uh, with some of my grad students. And again, these are doctors, nurses, mid-career usually. And we got on a topic of why prices, why costs, whatever, why spending might, might not drop over some time horizon. She said, well, there's a good thing for the good, good side of that, too. She said, that'll, for instance, I worry a little bit about the financial stability of the hospital I work at. And uh, if we're going to keep spending like that, then that means that where I work will be kind of stable. And that's a good thing. So then I sort of went, you know, not quite all capital letters and exclamation points, but saying, you know, what are you talking about? So we've just spent uh, a week discussing how can we get costs down. And you just said, we're not going to do it. And therefore, you know, is the purpose of the healthcare system to keep you employed and keep you in a high income? Uh, or is it to treat patients and to give them, um, give them the best medicine you can for the least cost? The problem is we've given the beast a veto over how we change. In fact, we've given them multiple vetoes. Uh, no one went to IBM in uh, UNIVAC, whatever, in the 60s and 70s and said, how can we persuade you to let people uh, like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and whatever put you out of business? They wouldn't have gone along. Uh, one of the things, both in David's book but also in the Christensen book, is the stress that insiders always lose when you get these nice disruptive innovations that do the rest of us good. Uh, so to some extent, you're not going to win over the management, the top guys in the field, because it is a threat to them, and that's just the way it is. But what you can reach, I do have a lot of my students who are doctors who are sort of out on the edge. They're not necessarily the insiders, but they, they're grasping for opportunities. How can I make a difference? How can, how can I make a really good living uh, in some way that might not necessarily be good for this big old hospital here? Um, but unfortunately, we give the beast vetoes. And the reason I said that we've got to do things simultaneously is because we give the beast a veto through the Medicare reimbursement system. We give them a veto through state regulations that uh, you have to play mother may I if you want to open a new hospital. And the state government can say, no, we don't need another hospital. And we give them a veto through insurance markets reinforced by the tax code. So it's, it's not necessarily persuading the whole bunch. It's persuading enough of them that they can do something with it. Yes, ma'am. Um, on the point of persuading, uh, I was could you, could you speak into the microphone, please? Oh. It's over your right shoulder. Um, I want to pick up on this idea of who has to be persuaded. Because I made, a, as I was listening to the talk, made a list of 
of blocks to reform. And I came up with misunderstanding the system, with incumbents, um, and with people who don't understand what insurance is doing and how, like Becky has no idea, by the way, my name is Becky, so I thought it was kind of funny, has no idea how much she's paying. But I think there's two issues which I've written down which haven't been addressed. And um, the idea is if we can't convince the incumbents, we have to convince the customers, which is to say the voters. But the problem is an awful lot of the people I know who are relatively highly educated, went to an Ivy League school, and yet they don't think real bright about this, because when it comes to voting on health care, they vote to show they care. The word care is really important to them. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times my Facebook page, the discussion of healthcare ends with, but you'll let people die in the streets. And linked to that is the idea that people actually think that making the carers, that is say the doctors and the nurses and the people who will do the caring for us, act in response to incentives is immoral. It's actually better, it's more moral if the doctors don't think about money. And if the, you know, mm -hmm. and Mike come back saying, well, you met a, ever met a doctor who didn't think about money. Uh, but the point is that there's this social idea that somehow voting for something like the Affordable Care Act makes you a better, more moral, caring person. And you're spending other people's money, your own money, it's invisible money. And that's a block to reform. And, and yep. Becky, that's th that's why I ended my show the way I did, because I, I agree with you. There's a lot of things that are irrational or not fully rational or emotional about healthcare, and that's probably a good thing. My book isn't a policy book. What it tries to do is tie what we see every day to what we see every day in healthcare. You know, I, my son went for an appendectomy, right? This appendix burst. It was horrible, right? But what's extraordinary about it was filling out the exact same form in the same hospital for three different specialties three times while he was in agony. Now, I don't do that at my dry cleaner or at Jiffy Lube. There's a reason I do that in my hospital. And so I'm less sort of focused on the policy here than on the how do we get, you know, wait a minute, that doesn't feel like Amazon's running healthcare, right? That doesn't even feel like my neighborhood grocery store's running healthcare. How do we tie our personal experience as patients, as customers, with all the extraordinary dysfunction we see to what we see in everything else? And what does, this, what does it tell us? Right now, the rhetoric of healthcare is kind of cheap, right? Show you care. Prevent people from dying in the streets. I can't tell you the number of times somebody has said to me, if I have a heart attack, I don't want to negotiate with my cardiologist. As if you're doing something different now, just under the surface that isn't worse for you. Mm -hmm. And so I think the focus has got to be not on cost, because everything is everybody else's money, and Becky hasn't figured out yet what this is costing her, and most of us are in that situation, right? It's about quality of care, reliability of care, and error rate. Because the interesting thing is you can't take incentives out of healthcare. You can't take incentives out of anything. Incentives matter, and part of the problems in healthcare is we have so many near saints in healthcare that we don't notice what we've built, because these saints seem saintly. <clears throat> But the fact is the economic incentives in healthcare push to bad results. And unless we change them, no matter how we pay for them, we will have bad results. And we see it not as policy people, but as patients. And as we start to apply that to, to what we talk about in healthcare, it'll change, I, I believe.
we were actually talking about the wow a lot of hands there uh we were talking about that the three of us were before we came out here to speak and uh and the uh how much of healthcare and health policy is signaling and how the value of that signal that is sent when you say you support a government guarantee of access to healthcare for all is only valuable if it is believed that that is improving people's health. And as David mentions in the book, and, uh, and, and, and I've argued, we don't have evidence to show that that's improving people's health. So if you really care, what you should be doing at a minimum is what, something like what they did in Oregon. Measure. Find out if, you're, if, if, if that signal you're selling, sending is actually having an effect. I mean, if, if you're actually improving people's health, because if you're not, then that signal isn't going to be valuable at all. Do yeah, yeah, I do. Um, another great question. Uh, one of my favorite wonky books is Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which sort of revolutionized the way we look at how science is conducted. Uh, sort of the traditional view is, well, we all get together and we look at data and it persuades us and we change our minds. Kuhn said, no, it's, the other, it's, it's a very different process. What it is is uh, old guys eventually die and the young guys <laughs> who have the newer data uh, come along and sort of take over and shove the old theories out. It's not because you managed to persuade the old guys. That's very true in this as well. And I will say one of the big problems, one of the weak spots is medical education in the United States because medical schools are still really following what I would say is a 19th century model. They're taught very well how to use a scalpel and how to take a pulse and how to look down someone's throat and how to, how to read a lab result. They are not taught anything about how to manage a hospital. They're essentially being taught to be solo practitioners out in the country and, and, and do house calls. That is essentially what medical education still is. Uh, and and if, you, if you think in David's world, running a television network, it's as if you were teaching people in his business to use a camera, uh, maybe to write a script, to act, whatever, but you didn't teach them how to figure out what the customers want or how to advertise it, or how to get it actually sell, sell the thing. And right now we have medical students, not only are they not being taught these other equal things that are just as important as how to use that scalpel, there is a political current in medical schools that is leaning toward statism that says, uh, you know, the, um, the Affordable Care Act is a wonderful thing and no one in their education questions it. Um, so that needs to change because you're at, you know, we're not going to persuade the old guys uh, who are going to lose their jobs through this. You do need to show the young ones there are alternatives and you can do really well doing this. Sir, the glasses. Do we, do, do we have just one microphone? No, okay. Please wait for the microphone. Um, my name is Michael Enders, and one of my work roles, I'm a psychotherapist. And some years back, I had a client who was seeing me ask that I sign, to, sign up uh, to become eligible as a Medicare uh, provider. And I, told, I had to tell him no because I found out that if I did that and continued to offer a sliding scale to other clients, I could be prosecuted for Medicaid fraud. Uh, if you want to just hand the microphone to the ro woman in the row behind you, we can get to her after the answers to Thank this you. question. 
a, a comment, if I oh. may, and then a question for I, I would actually just, uh, one quick point, sir. I, I hear this from a lot of physicians. My own physician just uh, left Medicare. When I talk about green shoots in healthcare, there are a lot of new business models for physicians and clinics that suggest a very different economy. He, he's changed his practice from what was half Medicare and half private insurance to being all cash and free. So he'd rather see all of his old legacy patients who were Medicare for free, those who can't afford it, than, than continue to charge away. Was There's a lot of change happening under the policy radar screen that I think could be really interesting. I'm sorry, ma'am. No, that's okay. Um, I'm Maureen Ryan. In my old life, I was a hospital administrator. I, I now work with uh, Corn Ferry doing, doing leadership consulting. Um, it occurred to me as I listened to everyone today talk about the libertarian perspective. Some people are left-leaning, some people are right-leaning. And I realize this is a provocative thought for Washington, D.C., but it occurred to me that there's a real opportunity, and that is the depolitization of healthcare. Healthcare is not a blue issue, it is not a red issue, it is an American issue. And, uh, and everyone genuinely cares, and there is such an opportunity to come and, and, and bring people together, and there are some phenomenal policy and thought leaders here in this room. If we could approach it with healthcare improvement and stop calling it healthcare reform, I imagine there wouldn't be anyone who would disagree or tell you that we shouldn't improve something. And a comment, if I may, and a question for David, because I am so excited when I see non-healthcare people who are not afraid to take on healthcare, who can demystify it, the sort of these hands are blessed by God, therefore you don't come and challenge and us. Your, and your question? I'm sorry, and my question is um, just whether you see in the non-healthcare folks um, a continuing expansion of people like you who are willing to have these discussions so that lay people can understand um, the opportunity for healthcare improvement. Well, I, I, look, I, I think there's a, uh, a general consensus outside of healthcare that the system is broken. What I'd like to activate is the patient-consumer part of that consensus to recognize that, you know, if 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 something's broke because the way you do it, maybe doing it twice as hard isn't the answer. Uh, I think the problem that that both Bob and Michael have referred to is that healthcare is now the biggest lobbying organization in this country. Healthcare policy is dominated by healthcare experts, and the problem with healthcare experts is they believe something that we know is completely false, which is that healthcare is very, very important. This is the only healthcare book you will ever read that says healthcare is not that important, and it's kind of easy to write when you're outside of the industry, and it's not how you make your living. Uh, but there's something very that, that, that needs to be realized first. Every time there's a comparative mortality study, OECD countries, we're always near the bottom in terms of lifespans, right? And here's what every headline in every newspaper sort of says. You know, United States trails in lifespan, and there's almost always because of our healthcare system or lack of care. Okay. So the healthcare system is probably the least important measured factor in that. The reason that Italians, Swedes, and Japanese live so long is not because they all have the same healthcare system. If you've ever been to healthcare facilities in those countries, they're unbelievably different. The systems are, right? They live like Italians, Swedes, and Japanese. That's how they eat, that's how they work, that's how their family structures is, what the communities are like. We in Britain are near the bottom of the OECD for lifespan. Why? Because we live and eat and shoot each other or knife each other there like Americans and Britons, right? And yet the language of healthcare has taken over the far more important language of health. Michael read a, a, a blurb about my saying, have we figured out whether this was best for the beneficiaries or not? The longer part of that blurb was saying, look, can we imagine 
any spending of $200 billion, and I know why you didn't read this, by the government on 30 million people that would have less of an impact on their health than health care. I mean, it's serious, right? Not everybody gets Super Bowl tickets forever, but education, nutrition, exercise programs. Now, my libertarian friends would argue those won't work, and by the way, most of those wouldn't work. But can we imagine any sort of initiative to help people that would have less of an impact on their health? But healthcare has hijacked the language of health, and that's a fundamental issue for all of us in figuring out. 18%, you know, one of the reasons other countries do better on healthcare is because they spend less on healthcare. So they spend more on stuff that actually drives health. Right? You spend less on healthcare, you're more likely to be healthy as a society. And we don't want to hear that. And healthcare policy experts, I mean, puts them out of business. There'll always be a job for you in television. I want you to know that. Um, and, and so those big language issues are part of it, too. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a challenge that I've issued to people who support a gov government guarantee of, of access to care for all, or what I like to call the Church of Universal Coverage, because it really bears some similarity to a religion, is, look, if what you, you, you say you support this, this policy because you want to improve health, but the evidence is so scant, why not do some experiments where you, where, where you compare spending, what was it, $200 billion on health insurance for people to spending $200 billion on better education, or just leaving that $200 billion with the people who earned it and letting them decide how to spend it and see what happens with their health. I wouldn't support uh, creating all these experiments unless the only alternative was to, say, spend $2 trillion on a, on, on a new, a couple of new healthcare entitlements. And so actually I've been talking about that idea quite a bit for the past couple of years. But uh, I, th I think that just posing the, uh, the challenge reveals that, no, it's not really about health. Uh, so... Um, I'm sorry, uh, ma'am, you had your hand up early on, and then uh, if you could pass the microphone down to Tom. Thank you. I'm Rosalind oh, McLennan, and I'm a survivor. I'm alive in spite of Medicare. And, uh, but my basic question, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here, because I, I found myself going along with everything you said, and then I said, whoa, wait a minute. Why isn't more spent on trials and on research? Steve Jobs was taken out by Merkel cell cancer. You don't see that in the movie about him. And my husband recently has been diagnosed with MCC, and he is, we're, we're fighting a battle, and I'm fighting breast cancer. Now, I have the better chance of survival because there are more, it's democratic. There are more women with breast cancer than there are men. Mer Merkel cell is very, very rare, and you can't get trials. You can't get controls. And uh, the best research we have found, it says uh, maybe two years out. He doesn't, maybe he doesn't have two years. But we're, gonna, we're dealing with it with um, diet and other, and he's a basically very healthy man. But my basic question is, why not spend more on research in spite of numbers, in spite of, you know, on rare diseases, unlike Merkel? And what about the unknown and mystery that's involved in medicine. You raised the question of um, uh, is healthcare, healthcare, why is it different? Why is healthcare different from other markets? Yeah, I was quoting David. But, yeah, but because it is different from other markets well, in that it, there's that mystery, that element of mystery. So I, I want to address that question. I think it's important, but first of all, yeah. uh, obviously, most importantly, uh, I, I hope your husband does 
well in a, what well, must be a very difficult time, and thank you for sharing it with us. I know it mm -hmm. must be hard to talk about. Yeah, because Medicare almost kills me with breast cancer, but because of their their license, their okay. rules, they can't. You can't have two tests in one year. But, but I, I just want to just because oh, there's a lot of questions that. I think in what you raised, but I want to just talk about innovation, mm -hmm. right? So. Most innovation, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about the things we don't know we should innovate in yet. The question is, what are the processes that cause that type of transformative, disruptive innovation? If you look at our healthcare system today, one of the problems we have is once you introduce something that does some good, small amount of good, marginal good, 1% more, not even survive, but respond to treatment better, it is guaranteed to be reimbursed at its price. If you're a pharmaceutical company, or a device manufacturer, or a hospital, what do you invest in? Do you invest in those things that involve a lot of risk and a lot of potential return because they can cure whole diseases, they can change lives in enormous ways, but they involve real financial risk? Or do you invest in something that's a bit me too, kind of a marginal improvement, right? If you're, if you're making the next generation of phone, do you look to create the next iPhone or the next Samsung, or do you just make a red one? Well, but that's what we do, right. That's why you don't just make a red one, right? You try to do something that's transformative, that creates enormous value. You know, one of the things I argue in the book that we don't see very clearly is in a sense by guaranteeing a market and a price, for any innovation, no matter how small, we tilt the balance of research to the small because that's a better business model. And I wish I could convince you this, but if you look at pharmaceutical, look at the number of statins there are. Look at the number of antidepressants there are. Look at the, many, the number of hypertension drugs there are. The reason there are so many with relatively zero difference in their effectiveness is introducing a new one is essentially risk-free. That shouldn't be the case. We want research and innovation to flow to higher risk, higher reward, like it does in other sectors. But in healthcare, we've made it too good for too little. And so the argument I'd make, and I know you may not accept it, is we don't know where innovation comes from in our most innovative industries. There's a terrific book by a doctor named Topol in which he says, the annual exam is absurd. What is the point of measuring people on you know, 10 minutes a year? It tells us nothing. We have the capacity to measure things for almost nothing all year long. Is that the Chinese model then? And you go to a doctor when you're... No, no. He says almost all of it can be done remotely, and the technology exists. No one has an incentive to adopt it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in the healthcare world, what do you do? You just spent years trying to convince this. Now, everybody should get an exam once a year, even while the people who are really thinking about innovation say it has no value. The things that do have value, there's no market for those. And my argument in my book is, I, I'm not a healthcare guy. I can't tell you how to cure anything. I can't tell you what the next great discovery is. But I can tell you in other industries, the processes that drive innovation are missing here. Steve Jobs can't exist in this industry because if he makes those type of innovations and they serve consumers, he'll lose money. We've blown past 1.30, so I want to take one last question from Tom over there on the wall now. I'll head up for uh, Mr. Goldhill, uh, could you tell us what, after all uh, your study and your uh, and your your very trying experiences and uh, your your everything you've gained in terms of understanding the healthcare system, what changes you have made either in your personal life or in personal planning or in your business management uh, for 
the benefit of either your business or your employees? I'll give, thanks for asking that question. I'll give you a few quick ones. My company has moved to almost entirely high deductible plans. And we found what I think a lot of companies find, which is employees hate it in the first year, love it by the second year. Um, we also have a much better, we have much more leverage over our insurers in doing so. Uh, from a personal point of view, I joined the board of LeapFrog. Uh, and we pushed very hard to create hospital safety uh, scores, which uses the best data available to give consumers information on what probably is the most important healthcare decision they make, which is which hospital should I actually have my treatment at. On a personal basis, I've become something I wasn't before. I refer in the book to something I call the passivity disease. You know, you have people go to a hospital to have a child, and I did this, and spend hours researching what the right child seat is for the trip home with their new baby. We do no research on the hospital, no research on the doctor. We believe that if it's a hospital and it's a doctor and he's got a diploma and the drug company got approval from the FDA and it's a treatment my friend had, that means this place, this time, this treatment is right for me. The passivity disease is the greatest cost of our healthcare system. In pretending we're protecting people from making decisions in healthcare, we're harming them because you have to make decisions in healthcare. It's not can we be consumers in healthcare. It's that we make all the decisions in healthcare. Medicare never calls you up and says, I'm a little concerned about that spot above your eye. Your insurer doesn't say, hmm, you know, when you were walking up the stairs the other day, you were short, out of, uh, short of breath after a few. This is not a paternalistic system protecting us. This is a system disguising from us the choices we are making. And because those choices are disguised, we're not making them well. And I think from a personal point of view and a family point of view, being aware that all the stuff I kind of accepted was a moment for me to think, make a decision, and evaluate, has probably have a bigger impact on my health over time than anything else I'll do. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much.